Hi there, and welcome to episode 20. As always, your clicking that play button is much appreciated. We're going to continue to revisit films, films from the past and the present that are well-loved and well-remembered, and maybe in some cases, just the opposite. And if this is not your first time listening, then chances are you have heard that quote from actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. And that applies as well to today's episode, because we are going to be taking a closer look at the original Star Wars trilogy, or as they are more colloquially known, the OT. Now, there is so much Star Wars content out there. We have three trilogies, two standalone films, television movies, that 1978 holiday special made for TV that was that was special. Untold numbers of comics and fan fiction, unauthorized novels, and of course you have current TV series like The Mandalorian, but we're going to be focusing today on just the OT, the films that launched the whole thing beginning in 1977. We are going back to the basics, people. And we're going to have the usual helping of classic dialogue to bring to the table, like this little gem from the 1977 original, one of my favorite lines. Blast it, Biggs, where are you? I am your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. So as we dive into today's show, allow me to give the customary spoiler-free premise of today's film, or or films, I should say, since we're talking about this three-part trilogy. Then a friendly spoiler alert as we go into the countdown of behind-the-scenes fun facts. After that, we'll move on to what I am most excited about this time around, a friend and fellow podcaster, Mr. Mike Davis, who will be joining us. We are going to be swapping personal memories of seeing these movies for the first time. We're going to get into favorite moments, and then we're going to wrap things up with the trivia segment for all of you listeners. We got the trivia results from last episode, the the online poll results, and the shoutouts and acknowledgments to you, and all of your feedback and contributions and your own creations. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. If you're not too familiar with the premise of the juggernaut trilogy of films that this is, here are the basics. And I'm paraphrasing the famous opening scroll here. The setting is out of space. The story bops around from planet to planet, from starship to spaceship. It's in a galaxy that's a million miles removed from our own. Or, as story creator George Lucas famously put it, a galaxy far, far away. And Oh, yeah, and it's supposed to be way back in the days of yore, I guess you could also say a long time ago. So, apparently, there is this evil guy who is pretty hungry for power and political influence. He wants to rule the galaxy with his iron fist, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to take that power and to keep it. And no... We are not talking about Darth Vader. We are talking about this dude who declares himself the Emperor. And the funny thing is, is that he is not in the original film at all. He's only briefly referred to. He only appears as a holographic image in the second film, The Empire Strikes Back. And he finally shows up on screen in person in Return of the Jedi, the final film in the OT. But you know what? Let me read you here an excerpt from the prologue of the 1976 novelization of Star Wars that Lucas himself wrote. I proudly own an original copy. Can't screw up the details of the story if the words are coming straight from the horse's mouth. And I quote from the prologue. Once, under the wise rule of the Senate and the protection of the Jedi Knights, the Republic throve and grew. I'm not sure if throve is a word. I think it should be thrived, but whatever. But as often happens when wealth and power pass beyond the admirable and attain the awesome, 
Then appear those evil ones who have greed to match. So it was with the Republic at its height. The Republic rotted from within, though the danger was not visible from outside. Aided and abetted by restless, power-hungry individuals within the government, the ambitious Senator Palpatine caused himself to be elected President of the Republic. Once secure in office, he declared himself Emperor, shutting himself away from the populace. Soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlickers he had appointed to high office, and the cries of the people for justice did not reach his ears. Having exterminated through treachery and deception the Jedi Knights, the guardians of justice in the galaxy, the Imperial governors and bureaucrats prepared to institute a reign of terror among the disheartened worlds of the galaxy. Many used the Imperial forces and the name of the increasingly isolated Emperor to further their own personal ambitions. But a small number of systems rebelled at these new outrages. But a small number of systems rebelled at these new outrages. They began the great battle to restore the Old Republic. End quote. And there you have a much more detailed explanation than the opening scroll in the film that simply offers... It is a period of civil war. So, <laughs> you gotta love the uh, the brevity with that one. So no, Darth Vader is not the big boss, despite what first-time viewers may assume. He serves the Emperor. But long before the franchise expanded to include characters like Baby Yoda in The Mandalorian, long before we ever heard of a robot called BB-8, long before Count Dooku and Jar Jar Binks and Queen Padme and Qui-Gon Jinn, there was a young film director in the early to mid-1970s hot off an Oscar nomination for his coming-of-age comedy drama, American Graffiti, which, by the way, I covered in episode 4, so go back and give episode 4 of Silver Screen as a listen if you want to hear all about American Graffiti. But this space fantasy was his pet project. When he finally was able to put the original Star Wars into production, there were financial and technological difficulties up the wazoo. So here is your friendly spoiler warning as you now get the top 10 fun facts about 1977's original. Number 10. Lucas had a lot of trouble trying to find a studio that would back this project financially. Universal rejected it twice. Number 9. The footage from the first day of filming of Luke famously staring at the twin sunset on the desert planet of Tatooine, that had to be scrapped because of lousy weather. They reshot it a week later, and one of cinema's most indelible images was in the can. Number 8. The cast and crew of the television miniseries Jesus of Nazareth was also filming in Tunisia at the same time. They had already booked the best hotels, so the Star Wars team had to double and triple up in fourth-rate hotels. Number seven, director Brian De Palma and Lucas together began casting for their films. De Palma was putting together the film version of Stephen King's debut novel Carrie. Lucas, of course, was casting for Star Wars. They both needed actors in pretty much the same age range. They saw thousands of young hopefuls, and as the late Carrie Fisher recalled with her trademark sarcasm, she said, quote, Brian did all the talking because George didn't talk then, end quote. Number six, casting could have beens. John Travolta, Nick Nolte, Tommy Lee Jones, they all came in to audition the first week. Lucas passed on all three of them. But Travolta made a positive impact on Brian De Palma, who was in the same room, and Travolta was cast as the hoodlum Billy Nolan in Carrie. Number five, another casting could have been. Sit down for this one. 
Freddy Krueger himself. That's right, Robin England. He gained fame as the evil slasher Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. He unsuccessfully tried out for the role of Han Solo. Number four, the George Lucas connection. After filming Star Wars, but before it was released, Mark Hamill was cast as the oldest of the eight kids in the Bradford family in the TV series Eight is Enough. One of the other actors in that show's cast, who plays his on-screen sister, her name is Susan Richardson, she previously appeared in a scene with Ron Howard in American Graffiti as a character named Judy. Hamill chose to leave Eight is Enough after the pilot episode. He was replaced by Grant Goodeve for the show's entire run, but Susan Richardson did stay on as one of the five Bradford sisters. Number three, the character of Han Solo was originally envisioned as a gilled, green-skinned creature before eventually becoming the world-weary smuggler that we all know and love. Sort of a hybrid of the rebelliousness of a James Dean and the, the jaded cynicism of a Humphrey Bogart. Number two, speaking of Han Solo, Lucas briefly considered Al Pacino and Kurt Russell before finally settling on a 32-year-old New Yorker named Christopher Walken. Lucas ultimately went with Harrison Ford, who he felt was more fun and goofy. He felt Walken was more serious and more realistic. And number one, the film had its premiere on Sunday, May 1st, 1977, in a theater in San Francisco. George Lucas and some of his team, they were all there in attendance. It was the very same theater where American Graffiti had debuted four years earlier. And Lucas's wife at the time, she was an editor, Masha Lucas, she said to him, quote, if the audience doesn't cheer when Han Solo comes in at the last second on the Millennium Falcon to help Luke when he's being chased by Vader, the picture doesn't work, end quote. Sure enough, the audience erupted into cheers and applause at that moment, and Lucas turned to her afterwards and said, well, I guess we won't have to change anything after all, end quote. And there you are. But enough of that. Let's bring today's guest on. His name, again, is Mike Davis. He is a lifelong Star Wars fan. He is the host of his own podcast, but I'm going to let him be the one to tell you all about that. I'm going to yield the floor to him right now so that he can speak for himself. Mike, how you doing? Hey, Frank, I am good. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Glad to have you on. Been looking forward to this. Um, yeah, so you yourself are a big Star Wars fan. I mean, like I just said, you have a whole podcast devoted to it. So tell us a little bit about how you came up with that and the title and what the purpose of your show is. Yeah, sure thing, Frank. So I've been a Star Wars super fan since I was about five years old. And so with the advent of technology, you know, I'm always a little bit kind of behind the curve. And so I'm like, hey, what's this newfangled podcast thing that came out after five years or so? And I'm like, you know what? I have enough of an opinion of Star Wars, love of Star Wars. And I really felt that right now in the Star Wars dialogue, there's a whole lot being said, but there's also a whole lot of negativity and hostility. And that's not really what I feel Star Wars should be about. So I really wanted to bring a positive voice and a positive show uh, into the Star Wars environment. And so not that I'm not going to quibble, you know, there could be some things that I don't like. There's going to be movies and shows and characters I like better than others, but we all love Star Wars and I am never going to slam you for loving a movie that I may not enjoy that much. So I really just want to make it something positive, something fun, maybe take a different look, a different slice and analysis of Star Wars through different lenses. And I call my podcast, Now This Is Podcasting, 
after that infamous quote from the Phantom Menace where you know, young Jake Lloyd as, as young nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker is doing his best George Lucas inspired hot rod racing in Todd. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a cheesy line and maybe you're not the best of the Star Wars movies, but the line stuck with me. And I thought it was a really kind of fun way to capture that sense of innocent and excitement uh, that I wanted to bring to the Star Wars podcasting family. Absolutely. Love or hate the Phantom Menace, you cannot deny the fact that Lucas, in my mind anyway, was going for that sense of childhood wonder. It definitely seems to be much more, uh, I don't know, just much, it seemed to keep that, that, that spirit of nostalgia in mind. Yeah, I absolutely agree, right? You know, again, I know that we're, we're not here to talk about the prequels, but you, you kind of can't talk about the OT without the PT. So uh, it's a nice little segue. And again, that's how I got into my podcast. If you don't mind me doing a shameless plug. So you can, you can find now this is podcasting on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting directories. I'm on you know, Apple I kept, you know, podcast. I'm on Spotify. Look me up. I'm also on Twitter, you know, with my now this is podcasting account. And I will give that the handle for that is actually at podcasting is, and I'll provide that information later. It's early stages, uh, but I'm having a blast with it. And I really hope that folks are listening or enjoying it as well. No pun intended, right? Blast. <laughs> Open the blast doors. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, yeah, no, I've, I have a, actually a number of questions I wanted to have just, you know, a conversation with you about. And the first one that comes to mind is of the three Star Wars films, the three original Star Wars films, that is, which is, in your memory, the first one that you ever saw? And how old were you? Yeah, I was a, I was a little guy. So I was in uh, Richmond, Indiana, where I was born. And I was about five, going on five. And I saw an ad in the newspaper, you know, those actual physical paper things that people used to read to get their news. And I saw this ad for this thing that looked really cool. There were spaceships and a guy with a light sword and robots. And I'm like, wow, this looks great. So I begged my mom to take me uh, to the theater. She wound up taking me to a late afternoon show. I was really young again, not even five years old. And despite all the excitement, here I am in the theater. I begged for this and I fell asleep by the time the guys got to the cantina. <laughs> so... Not an auspicious start to my Star Wars fandom. Oh, uh, how did she react to that? <laughs> well, uh, she was a little annoyed at first. She's like, you know, I spent, you know, five whole good American dollars at the time. Again, this is back in the Stone Age. Oh, dear uh, Lord. With dollars for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I basically kept at it. I bugged her and bugged her and bugged her until she agreed to take me again. And I was absolutely enamored. Um, I think that the first character that really struck me was 3PO, just that shiny gold and the way that he moved. I'd never seen a robot move like that. And of course I was taken in by the spaceships and the Star Destroyer and the lightsabers and the whole epic sort of sweep of it. My little five-year-old mind couldn't necessarily comprehend all of it, but I knew I liked it. And actually I knew I loved it. Um, and so I immediately became hooked and had to buy every comic book and toy and, and everything else that came associated with it. But it, it hooked me early on. Absolutely loved it. Say so what you just said about C-3PO, that's actually a great segue into something else that I wanted to ask you. Out of the entire original trilogy, do you have a favorite character? 
in your opinion, is there a character from the OT who is overrated? And is there one you think is underrated? Ooh, that, those are great questions. And this is why I wanted to appear on your show, Frank. So, um, because I, you don't shy from the hard questions. So, no, um, yeah, this is good stuff. So my favorite character changed actually over time. So initially I was a Han Solo guy. So I talked about 3PO and he, you know, very early on, but as, especially once we hit Empire, Han Solo uh, became my role model, right? I, he had the fast ship. He had the giant, cool best friend who could beat anybody up. He was interested in this really pretty princess. Uh, he was cocky. He was funny. He got it. He had a lot of action. He was a great shooter. Uh, he had everything going for him, right? Of course, some bad things happened to him in the, in the movies, but he really initially hooked me. Uh, but then as I, over the years, and as I changed, you know, my, my mindset changed, and I really associated myself more with Luke Skywalker, uh, and I think a lot of that was I could identify so much with Luke, uh, you know, being trapped in the small backwater planet. I associated that with my town in the Midwest and wanting to escape and see adventure, excitement. You know, I know a Jedi is not supposed to crave those things, Yoda, but <laughs> we do. Uh, and in just sort of his journey, right, that full hero's journey and his maturation it really resonated with me. So started as Han, wound up with Luke for my favorite. If I had to say a least favorite or maybe overrated, that gets a little bit, that gets a little bit tricky. Um, if I have to look back and, you know, I'm probably going to, you know, don't send your hate mail to me, forget all that social information that I told you. Um, I almost have to say, I think R2 is a little bit overrated and I love the little guy to death, but he's sort of a, sometimes a, Desix Machina, like more than he should be. You know, all you know, these R2D2 ports just happen to be conveniently located whenever they need them. Uh, he can just plug into anything. He's the original universal adapter and he can just sort of, hey, I can talk to Imperial Systems. I can talk to Cloud City. I can fly when I need to. I know all this institutional memory, but I'm not going to tell anybody any of it. You know, it's like he was there. He, you know, if we get to the prequels, he flew Anakin to Mustafar to kill. I mean, come on. It's, you know, R2 knows all these dirty deeds. He didn't have his memory wiped. And yet he's just kind of boxing along. So, again, I love him, but I feel like he's a little bit overrated. And he's certainly got nothing on the Cape scale compared to Baby Yoda or even a Baby Ewok. Now, that's actually a very good point. I mean, if I had to pick one, a character from the OT that I thought was overrated, and I'll, I'll probably get some backlash for this myself. I I don't know. I, I he's cool, but I didn't think that Boba Fett was you know the mm. ultimate badass that you know I think that the Disney Studios were banking on the fan base thinking that he was. I there's plenty of love for him, but I don't know. I I mean he's great, but I wouldn't say that the whole Star Wars universe revolves around him. Well, if you remember back, right, uh, before Empire Strikes Back came back, and this goes into the toy thing a little bit, right, is remember the Boba Fett action figure you could send away for? Yes. If you got the little cutouts from the back of the Kenner figures, <laughs> and there was that whole urban legend, did he have the shooting rocket pack or didn't he? Did a kid choke to death on it? We don't know. It's all these legends, right, pre-internet. But Boba Fett's aura, especially in Empire, was really good, right, because he was mysterious. He stood up to Vader. He didn't fear him. He was able to track Han Solo down. He seemed fearless. 
that was yeah he was sort of a badass in empire and then return of the jedi they nerfed him right and he he gets hit with a stick by a blind han solo goes careening off with a wilhelm type scream and then falls down into the giant hole in the sand and it's like really that's how this dude goes out so disney's been doing the reclamation project with the mandalorian right if you get into season two of that there is a whole rejuvenation of Boba Fett that I think is very, very purposeful because it addresses what happened to Boba Fett in Return of the Jedi. But if you just go based on the, the OT, yeah, he is certainly overrated. He's far more bark than bite. No, that's the perfect way of putting it. I mean, he shows up two thirds of the way through Empire Strikes Back and... Then you see him in the first, what, 25% of Return of the Jedi. And like you said, has that unceremonious ending. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's I, I, so uh, bad. <laughs> I love you, George, but <laughs> Well, speaking of that, um, my next question for you, uh, speaking of George Lucas, is he famously went back in 1997, right before the prequels were released. So right before he began production on the prequels. And he went back to the OT and he touched up the special effects and changed a few things around and added some additional CGI and cleaned up some sloppy editing. And the original trilogy was re-released in theaters one by one. I think it was May through July of 1997. And mm -hmm. before that, what I'm asking you is, did you have the opportunity to see all three of the OT on the big screen in their original versions before any of that was done? Yeah, fortunately I did, right? So I was very, very fortunate that after my, you know, complete, you know, enamoration with Star Wars, I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it, uh, <laughs> you know, becoming completely in love with Star Wars, there was no way I wasn't seeing Empire Strikes Back uh, or Return of the Jedi in the theater. Couple fun facts. One is Empire Strikes Back still holds my all-time record for the most times I've seen a movie in the theater. And you know, hold on to your uh, to your blasters, kid. But I saw Empire Strikes Back 16 times in the theater. Get serious. 16. 16. That's that's 16. A, that over a baker's dozen. Phenomenal. It, it but you know, you gotta think, right? That's the time before we had VHS. It's the time before you knew things were gonna be available on streaming. And you know, it's like you don't know when this movie's coming back again. I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, even looking back now, I'm like, hmm, that was uh and just another funny thing about Empire Strikes Back. Uh, my mom, again, I was maybe eight when Empire Strikes Back hit the theaters. And I got my mom and my sister to take me to a midnight showing in Dayton, Ohio, right? Braving this line of hundreds of people. I think it was actually a school night. So it was really irresponsible, but Ooh. I got my family to go along with it. And so I saw it. I loved it. I was amazed. We're walking out. Now this theater was showing 24 seven, right? So there were lines waiting up for the next screening at 2 a.m. Right. I mean, this is how big Star Wars was. And we're walking past this line of hundreds of people who are very eager. And this woman in front of us sees one of her friends in line and she goes, oh, oh, you're not going to believe it. But she goes, oh, you're not going to believe it. She's like, Darth Vader cuts off Luke's hand and he's his father in top of her lungs oh. in front of hundreds of people. The ultimate spoiler sin. And people started turning and glaring at her. And she started realizing what she did. Oh, my friend's my like, you, God. You better get out of here. And my mom's like, we're out of here. Let's go. <laughs> and she rushed us out. Oh, my God. That is a Homer Simpson moment right there. <laughs> it, 
totally is. Oh yeah, can you God. imagine? It's two in the morning. You've been standing in line for multiple hours. Well, in nineteen. So, uh, that was that was yeah, nineteen eighty one. Man, it's like oh, there was no spoilers on the internet. You 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 would have to be like connected to somebody in Lucasfilm to know what was going to happen before it happened. That's just unimaginable. In 1980, 1981, for something like that to happen, these days, people would have taken out their phones, recorded their reactions, made sure they captured her, and she would have gone viral. They would have put her image all over the internet. Yes, she would have been on blast, and it would not have been contained to just that Mullen date in Ohio. So she's a little bit lucky in a way that happened when it did. It's actually a good segue into what I wanted to talk to you about next, given what she did, which was rather villainous. <laughs> what is, <laughs> if you can sort of shift gears and talk a little bit about one of my favorite elements of the OT is the music, the John Williams score. Do you have a particular music track from any of those three films that you would call your favorite? Does not necessarily have to be your favorite moment in one of the films, but a favorite piece of music. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's hard to go wrong with John Williams, right? I mean, he's a he's a magician and his scores are amazing for you know all the films and all the Star Wars properties. I mean, not to mention Raiders and Jaws, and you could go on and on. Um, but I think that my absolute favorite is the force theme. And you hear that a lot of different places through the movies, but the part that really resonated with me and made an emotional attachment was when Lucas, it's in episode four, A New Hope. I know it's still Star Wars to me too, but I have to call it by its name now. But when Lucas, I know, when Luke goes, I had to call the official nomenclature, right? I got a letter from Disney saying that I have to call it that. So. Uh. <laughs> so when Luke is frustrated and he's walking out of his house on Tatooine and he walks to that sand dune and the twin suns are setting and he's looking off with this mixture of sadness and regret and yearning to be somewhere else and that theme picks up it's it's magical it's a complete cinematic miracle right it's one of those perfect marriages of music and what's happening on the film and invoked a ton of emotions in me and still does to this day. So I would say definitely, you know, again, like I mentioned before, it tied into my own sense of yearning to see something different, to get out of my boring hometown. Uh, so I really, you know, sympathized, empathized with Luke and that score and, and that scene just brought it all together perfectly. Yeah, and I, I cannot think of whether we're talking the fantasy sci-fi genre or whether we're talking movies movie history in general but that theme and that image of the twin sons and luke staring out at them that just captures everything that his character at that particular point is supposed to be about he's well i'm gonna quote mark hamill here mark hamill said in the documentary the making of star wars which was it was made in like 77 78 uh you find it on youtube but he said of luke skywalker he like Jack Hawkins in Treasure Island or Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. He's that one character. He's very simple. He's very naive. And he wants more living out of life than what his circumstances are allowing him. And he just wants to get off the farm and go have some adventure. And staring at those twin sons, feeling trapped, feeling confined, like there is no way out of this, basically. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And it still hits me in the feels. And then, you know, when you get to different scenes throughout the different trilogies, too, they invoke that in other ways. And uh, it, it still has that power. And so kudos to George and kudos to John Williams. 
Yeah, no, no. I, this is something that it's it's it spans the generations. It really does. Well, that actually, you know, to, to bring this to the last question that I have with that said, out of the three OT films, which would you say is your favorite? And if you don't mind sharing this, which would you say is your least favorite? Sure. Um, so I know this is hardly a trailblazing pick. Uh, very brave of me to say this, but uh, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite. I think, you know, at the time, I obviously I saw it 16 times, so it did something to me. <laughs> but I think that the uh, I think that the fact I'd never seen a movie like that where the heroes were on the run, right, where the threat from the villains was so overwhelming and you were just hoping that your favorite character survived. Right. Again, I was very young. I'd never seen anything like that before. And I think just the darkness of it, the more serious tone, I think that the dialogue was better. I think that the stakes were higher. You know, we learn more about the force. Luke actually begins to train. He talks more about Vader. We learn much more about Vader as a threat. Uh, Han and Leia's relationship develops. Uh, we meet Lando. There's betrayal. There's romance. There's an epic confrontation at the end. And again, spoiler alert, but, you know, we have that momentous history altering moment and revelation on Cloud City between Luke and Vader. And you put all that together and it's just, my God, you're breathless almost the entire time. And I will say, again, I'm going <laughs> to dive deep here for a second. My favorite scene of any Star Wars movie all of them, all 11, if you count the, the standalones, is when Han Solo and Leia and Lando are going to the dinner, right? Where they're ultimately they're going to be betrayed. And the door opens and Han just turns and looks casually and he sees Vader stand up without a second's hesitation. Yeah. He's got blaster in hand and he's firing off like six bolts. Anyone else would have been dead. Vader's deflecting it with his hands. That was the most badass moment and still gives me chills. Just that I can't yeah. even, I can't even describe it properly. It just, it, it still floors me to this day. I can watch it on repeat forever. Well, it's kind of like a Dr. Sam Loomis, Michael Myers moment was I shot him six times. I shot him six times. <laughs> right. And it really established Vader as this true threat, but also just seeing Han not even hesitate. Right. You know, just seeing that, like, you know, without a second's thought, he just went into action. It's like, ah. Oh, it's fantastic. Well, it's just a perfect example of it's just so indicative of the kind of character he is. That's his instinctive. That's his knee jerk reaction is to pull out his blaster and just to blow away the enemy, blow away the threat. And, and you know what? Han did shoot first in both movies. <laughs> just, oh, yes. just throw that out there, George. Uh, uh, <laughs> Han did indeed shoot first because uh, that you're right. You're exactly right. That is who Han is. That's how he grew up, and that's how he stayed alive uh, through this very dangerous galaxy that he lives in. Um, and yeah, I, again, gushing like I'm fanboying over that, but it is—it's—it's uh, it's definitely my favorite moment. It's—it's it's like five seconds long, absolutely perfect. Well, it's just so character defining. I mean, it's 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 got action. It's got the music. It's got the you know j j everything just gelled. Every element of filmmaking: the sound effects, the visual effects, the characterization, the musical cues, the acting, the reaction shots. Everything just came together. So it was just so synchronous. You know that it it, it was it was. And I think too, what I remember even watching it recently is like I know it's coming, but it's still startling. Because everything's been so positive on Cloud City and it's his friend. 
uh, and things seem, and then just all of a sudden, like the devil himself appears, yes. right? In, in this yeah. holy looking place that's all white and almost like a temple and a cathedral. And all of a sudden, evil incarnate is right in front of you. Most people would shriek, other people would run. Han fights. And yeah, <laughs> love it. Love it. No, that's um, great moment. If I, it really is. If I had to, okay, so going with the movie, I like the least of the three. And oh boy, is that tough. Um, again, I, there's no way I think to say this without, you know, wounding myself slightly, but I would almost have to say Return of the Jedi. And the reason I say Return of the Jedi is that I think the Jabba Tatooine rescue portion goes on a little too long. I thought that could have been maybe tightened. It seemed really, see, it took a third of the movie, right? And really how much was accomplished, right? We got Han back, yes. But it took a long time to get that done. Um, and it, yeah, some character development for Luke and Boba Fett's ignominious exit, I get it. The, the middle of the movie also sort of dragged a little bit you know, sort of the setup to get the indoor. And I did like, you know, Luke going to Dagobah and, you know, Yoda passing and confirming Vader as his father. It was all, it was very like, but it was all very, very telling, right? It was like, it was like, you know, exposition, 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 you know, of everybody, Vader and the Emperor, the rebels planning their assault, Luke coming to terms with who his dad is. And it's like, can we get some action? Yeah. And yeah. the final third is amazing, right? I mean, the final, the final act, you know, the that actually may be one of Lucas's best. You know, he always traditionally does like these three different things happening at the same time, right? At the end of his movies, so nice four. But if you have the Luke Vader fight, confrontation with the Emperor on the Death Star, the space battle, and then the battle on Endor, that may be the best sort of three-way action scene in all the movies. Uh, it's well done. They're all interesting stories. Uh, very uh, exciting. Love it. it. The space battle is great. The fight between Vader and Luke and the Emperor is amazing. But it's a, uh, again, I feel so bad saying this. It's a bit of a slog to get there. Um, whereas I thought, you know, A New Hope, uh, Star Wars, I'm <laughs> falling that track. What are you doing? <laughs> I know. What am I doing? I should do better. Uh, but, you know, it, it took its time but it was world building, right? It took its yeah. time and it was a different, it was the seventies, right? It was like, it, it was that 70s style slow burn. Well, it kind of took its time unfolding, but it gave you resonance and you connected with the characters during that time. Empire was just propulsion, like survival mode for everybody. It was, you know, it was amazing, right? Jedi, I guess, you know, if you compare it to those two, it just felt, kludgy until it got to the end that's my unpopular opinion but um yeah well i don't know if i I would call it an unpopular pick because i mean i for one would say return of the jedi is definitely for me the weakest of the trilogy the original trilogy um for the same reason that you mentioned you know the the pacing and too much time with jabba the hut and all of that but i think for me even at the age of nine when return of the jedi came out my biggest problem with it even then was how repetitive it felt. We're back on Tatooine. Yes, there's another Death Star. Yes, there's more, you know, there's another lightsaber duel between Luke and Darth Vader. It, it just felt very repetitive. But it did. That, well, and maybe this was just me being, you know, the cynic that I sometimes can be. But 
I thought that Return of the Jedi just had in the dialogue and in the, it just felt much too, I don't know, it just felt much too corny. For example, when, when, you know, when Darth Vader has his redemptive moment, Luke, help me take this mask off. That is, that should be like the biggest emotional moment of the entire trilogy and it is in some ways but the dialogue kills it and i know that lucas is not known for stellar dialogue vader says well anakin says now go my son leave me and luke says no you're coming with me i'll not leave you here i've got to save you i'll not who the hell says i'll not (laughs) it's very stilted right it is very very awkward yeah and thank you for bringing up the dialogue because it's a huge change i don't know empire strikes back dialogue just felt very impactful it felt like there was thought behind it return of the jedi dialogue just felt like um you know in addition to i'll not leave you here when luke is talking with Leia and telling her you're my sister Leia and when the Emperor and Darth Vader are talking to each other the fact that the Emperor constantly more than once Emperor and Darth Vader they both refer to we will turn him to the dark side of the force we will turn him to the bad side <laughs> and it's like you're identifying yourself as the dark side. You're identifying yourself. In Empire Strikes Back, what Vader says to Luke after cutting off his hand is, join me. Together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Okay, I buy that. But, oh, yeah. That yeah. has like an Arthurian type of thing to it, right? Yeah. There's like a Shakespearean oh, 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 element to it. Yeah. You know? it's, it, it has an eloquence to it. I think you're right. Everything in Empire either sounded more natural and realistic, like Han and Luke's banter on Hoth and, you know, Han and Leia's banter on the Falcon was far more realistic and natural, whereas Jedi felt forced, right? It felt like, again, just like you're reading something awkward off of a mad libs right you know and it's like felt like a rough draft like they didn't bother to go back and polish it up because they were too busy focusing on i don't know the visual effects or something but or what toys they can make out of the stuffed animals they can make out of the ewoks but it was (laughs) i don't know it just did not there was no sense of there was no sense of drama no sense of tension it was much more the, the dialogue i mean the dialogue in jedi was just much more eyeball rolling for me and I don't know. I think for me, that really sank the ship. Uh, it, it brought it down a couple of notches for me. And then the visual of the half-completed Death Star, yes, that was incredible. I have a very vivid memory of seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater when it first came out and the camera after the opening scroll panning down, you see the half-completed Death Star. I can remember that there was a group of kids in the audience and they all went, whoa, and it is a great <laughs> visual. It truly is. But it, I remember being nine years old and thinking to myself, wait a minute, there's another Death Star? Right. Didn't, didn't we already do this? <laughs> like, like, exactly. It's like, oh what kind God. of Imperial budget is Palpatine dealing with? That he's got, he's got a spare, right? Because how long did it take to build the first one? He's got another one already under construction after he has the first. It's like, yeah, dude, what kind of appropriations committee are you going through? And what kind of taxes <laughs> are Imperial citizens dealing with to fund uh-huh. these monsters? You know, it's uh, it's crazy times. But I will say this, though, in defense of Return of the Jedi, one of the best moments of the trilogy, one of my favorite moments of the trilogy was in Return of the Jedi when Luke goes completely house on Darth Vader. When yes. 
says, uh, maybe I'll, you know, set my evil sights because I am evil. I am the dark side of the force. I'm the bad one. Uh, <laughs> in case you weren't sure. <laughs> in case you weren't sure, you're the good guy and I'm the bad guy and I'm going to turn you into one of me. Um, when Vader says, if you're not going to turn to the dark side of the force, then maybe your sister will. And that's when Luke flips out, screams no, goes after him with a lightsaber, cuts off Vader's hand. That moment is incredible. And that is my favorite piece of music out of the entire trilogy. And mm. I was bummed when, at least in the edition of the soundtrack that I got in 1983 on this big record uh that piece of music was not on the soundtrack for whatever reason it wasn't no that's uh, a crime I, and i don't understand why. i mean these days all you have to do is just go onto youtube there it is but you know i'm talking you know 1983 and it was like that one piece of music like i was tempted to bring a tape recorder into the theater with me <laughs> in my coat pocket and record that one scene alone but i didn't but <laughs> Yeah, no, that is amazing music. I absolutely love it, right? It, again, it almost had sort of a biblical feel to it. Uh, you know, just it was always, always you could hear like chanting in the background or almost like a Gregorian type of thing. Yeah, it was uh, like a bunch of monks and they were all like Amityville horror style, just like singing with like this like dark, this dark tone to their uh, to their voices. Either that or it was just a really good keyboard. I don't know, one of the two. <laughs> and it was kind of like a dirge, right? You know, it was sort of, you know, it was it was very well done. Yeah, I think I liked a lot of what happened on the Death Star with Luke, Vader, the Emperor. It was great stuff. And yeah, some of the most impactful in the, the whole trilogy, maybe the whole saga. So yeah, I agree. Great choice. Oh, and can I take this one moment to say, you know, uh, as we're talking about that scene or that setting uh, at the final you know, Death Star battle, I just had to get a pet peeve off my, my uh, chest a little bit when you talk about the special edition changes. Okay. One of the most powerful moments for me is when the Emperor is shocking Luke, right? Luke is naively throwing his lightsaber away, and he's like, you will die, Jedi. And he just starts shocking him, right? And, you know, Vader is torn, right? You can tell there's just a little bit of Anakin coming through, but can he defy his master? And he's looking side to side, you know, Luke screaming, father, help me. And his master is just shocking the heck out of him like he did to Mace Windu. We didn't know it at the time, but it's a, it's like a parallel to that scene in Revenge of the Sith. In the theater, right? Like in the original edition, it was silence, right? You see Vader looking back and forth and then he lunges, Right. And he hoists Palpatine over his head and he's getting shocked. When I was in the theater on opening day in 1983, the crowd organically just stood up and started cheering. Like there was just like this outpouring of emotion when Vader finally turned on his master. It was epic. And then I see the latest edition of that. And they've got this cheesy canned tin. It doesn't even sound the same. No. <laughs> he starts saying it like five times, like, no. And then it's like he's telegraphing it. Like, you know that there's no drama. There's no struggle. He's If he's saying no, you know what he's going to do. It robs the tension and the drama of the scene. And I hate it. I really actively hate it. That's like the worst change, I think, that the special editions. It's almost even more egregious than Han shooting second. Right. That's almost just kind of silly. And it's like, we know what really happened, George, but that that needs to revert because that is a crime against a epic, really powerful scene. Yeah, it's almost as if the change was made just for the sake of there being a change, just to make something different. I think, yeah, again, if we tie back to it, it echoes what George had Anakin do when he was becoming Darth Vader and he learned of Padme's death. And it's like, do we need that continuity? I don't think anyone is really asking for it. Not, 
not everything has to rhyme, right? right. So, but yeah, so again, that's this is my own personal pet peeve. Uh, that is my least favorite change of anything that he tinkered with. Because to me, that was one of those powerful moments in any of the Star Wars movies when Vader makes his choice and decides to save his son. I mean, it, it really, and it's the moment that the whole trilogy was building up to. Right, the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, right? Yeah, it was epic. And I won't let those notes ruin it for me completely. It's still a magic moment, but might be a little, <laughs> little more magic if we just sort of, uh, a special, special, special edition to take that out. All right, and that just about wraps up this special episode on the Star Wars OT. Mike, I want to thank you. It has been great to have you join me today. Please come back at any time, any time that you'd like. It would be great to have you again. I don't know if you have anything, uh, any last thing that you want to say, any information about yourself, your show you want to put out there? Yeah, thank you so much, Frank. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I love Silver Screeners. It's an amazing podcast. Your your love and knowledge of history of films and cinema just really shines through. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk Star Wars and the OT with you. And yeah, so if you guys want to hear my rambling takes and different cuts and lenses on all things Star Wars. Now this is podcasting about 10 episodes strong and growing. And yeah, so check it out on any of your favorite podcast channels. Uh, Check me out on Twitter. Uh, That handle again is uh, at podcasting is, and I look forward to talking with you soon. Hope you check the show out. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So yeah, no, we will definitely make this happen again. And thank you to everyone who voted in the poll, which asked whether or not, in your opinion, any of the three OT films is a weak entry. The final tally from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram is that there is no weak entry. Got a few votes for Return of the Jedi, and one actually for the 1977 original. Not surprisingly, not one vote, not a single vote for Empire Strikes Back as being a weak one. That one does tend to be a fan favorite. Of course, I'm again excited by the feedback that came in, a lot of it with a lot of infectious enthusiasm for the OT. My friends from Rewatch, Relive, Repeat Podcast out of New Zealand, they said, oh my god, I can't wait for this. Big fans themselves. As is Davey A. over in Britain, host of I'd Give That 10 Minutes, he proclaimed the original trilogy is still epic. Indeed, good sir, it is. Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast. Honest to God, I love that title. Look them up. They said, of the three, Jedi is the weakest. Yet what director wouldn't saw off their own limb to make a weak movie like that? Good call, guys. Can you imagine landing a plum assignment like a Star Wars movie? I mean, that's annuity right there. That's instant fame. Regular listener Mary C., she offers this up. She says, I loved the original trilogy. As do a lot of us cinephiles, Mary. Thank you very much, as always. And my friend Mike W., co-host of the local cable program Real Life, R-E-E-L. He has this to say. I think you can't top the original trilogy with its great storyline and cast. It was so unique for the late 70s and early 80s. Thank you to all of you for your contributions. Hopefully you're enjoying the interaction as much as I am. I love to see it happen, so let's keep it happening. And to reiterate what I've been saying about the trivia, it does not matter when you send in your answer. doesn't matter what episode you're listening to at whatever time, just go for it. If you're listening to this episode for the first time and it's next spring, doesn't matter. There is no cutoff point. You'll get a personalized meme and a shout out. So here is this episode's trivia. The Star Wars films are well known for one repeated line of dialogue. You know you want to say it with me. Go for it. I have a bad feeling about this. 
In the original 1977 film, when does Han Solo say that immortal line? Is it A, when Greedo confronts him at Mos Eisley's spaceport? Or is it B, in the trash compactor room right before the walls begin moving in? A or B? Send your answers on over. You can contact me through my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter. The film group Silver Screen is on Facebook. On Instagram, it's frankmendoza1974, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And that wraps up this special episode on the Star Wars OT. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give this show a rating, wherever you listen to your podcasts, whatever platform that really does help with the show's viability and visibility, it helps with the algorithms a lot. Or if you want to leave a quick review, that would be very much appreciated as well. Thank you again for joining. Rock on. Thank you, Mike. I'm Frank. Until next time, keep on screening. I'll see ya.